0: Man, I'm glad the worship was really good this morning because the sermon's not, so uh, <laughs> we'll see. At the conclusion of a sermon, the worshipers were filing out of the sanctuary and greeting the minister, and as one of them left, he shook the minister's hand and thanked him for the sermon and said, thanks for the message, preacher. You know, you must be smarter than Einstein. And the was, minister was beaming with pride and said, why, thank you. And as the week went by, the minister started thinking, "Uh, I wonder what he meant by that, you're smarter than Einstein. And so he decided to ask him the following Sunday, and the next Sunday he asked this guy if he remembered the previous Sunday's comment about the sermon, and the man replied he did. The minister said, well, what exactly did you mean that I must be smarter than Einstein? And the man replied, well, preacher, they say that Einstein was so smart that only 10 people in the entire world could understand him. But preacher, no one can understand you. (laughs) And that's been my concern both last Sunday and this Sunday. And I thought last Sunday, Rich and did an amazing job on the existence of God. So I've got uh, a tough one to here on the Trinity. And I'm hoping this is a day you can understand this. I, I'm going to address an aspect of God that I very seldom have. I doubt if you've heard a whole lot of sermons on this. And it's kind of odd we don't hear a lot of sermons because it is considered one of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith about God. It's been called the primary dogma of Christianity. Some call it the unfathomable doctrine. So the question that was submitted this summer by one of you was, can you help me understand the Trinity? And the short answer is, probably not. But I'm hoping we can help you out a little bit. We're in this series called Questions People Have. It's some questions that you have have submitted to, and I think this might be the toughest of all. The Trinity is one of the most unique doctrines of the Bible. Christianity is the only faith that holds to this doctrine. No one can fully understand it, much less adequately explain it. When we talk about God, we are talking about a God we cannot fully grasp, a God who is so far above us, so beyond us, an infinite God that we finite creatures cannot understand, and this is possibly the uh, hardest-to-understand facet of him. Now, one minister I was listening to said, don't lose sleep if you cannot unravel the truth of the Trinity. And I get that. You don't have to, be a, uh, to understand this fully. In fact, you can't. You can't, don't have to understand this in order to be a Christian. And yet, down through history, it has been a source of conversation and even conflict because the implications are much greater than we might think. So I think it behooves us at least to talk about it because it is so critical. See, if we get God right, we have a better chance of getting life right you tend to become what you worship. So it is important to know what kind of God you and I worship. I preached on the Trinity, I think last time, about 30 years ago. I was in Robinson, Illinois. I was in my 30s. Uh, I was a lot smarter then, at least I thought I was, a lot braver and a lot foolisher. And I still remember I had two people come into my office later that week to talk about that sermon, and one was an elder. Now, this was a very a good, intelligent, articulate elder, and he came in and said, I had no idea what you were talking about. I mean, preachers don't like to be hearing things like that. God is incomprehensible, but we preachers don't want to be incomprehensible. So I was kind of bummed about that. And then a couple days later, someone came into my office, a junior high student, and he was pretty smart, really a smart young man, and he came and started asking questions about the sermon and dialoguing about it. It was really interesting. Apparently, he understood at least part of it. So I'm not sure what to make of that. Maybe there's something about being a junior high mind on on this. But today we're going to deal with two main questions. You'd think with the Trinity we'd have three, but nope, just two. What? And so what? What is the biblical data for? Just what is it? And so what? What difference does it make? The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. That doesn't mean the doctrine is not in there. We use the word incarnation. That's not in the Bible, but it's the concepts there where God becomes flesh. The word communion is not in Scripture, but we use it to describe the covenant symbol of bread and wine in the New Testament as we commune with Christ. There are two strands of biblical teaching in regard to this doctrine. It teaches, first of all, the oneness of God. God is one. There's only one God. Monotheism, both Jews and Christians hold to this concept. So do Muslims. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. First Corinthians 8 says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and from whom we live. So monotheism says there's one God as opposed to polytheism, which is there's many gods, or atheism, which there is no God. The second teaching is that although there is one God, there are three persons who are God. And one of those persons is Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God as His kingdom. He claimed to forgive sins, which only God can do. He claimed to judge the world and reign over it, which God claims. He accepted titles and names reserved only for God. He's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He calls Himself the I Am, which is God's name in the Old Testament. In Philippians 2, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being in very nature God, in other words, his substance was God. Like my substance is human. His substance was God. And he lowered himself for a period of time to come and die for us. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And who is this Word that was God? Down verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. It's Jesus. He's the Word and He was with God. The world was created through and by Him. Same with the Holy Spirit. There are passages where the Spirit is used interchangeably with reference to God. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit sounds like an inanimate thing like the rock or the chair, but the Holy Spirit is a person. The word th- the can kind of throw you off. The Holy Spirit is an e, not a he, not an it. He's a person. Think of like the Donald or the king. So these three persons, God, Father, Spirit, are all God. Are you with me so far? This is pretty basic. Trinity talk. Now, that sounds contradictory. God is one, and yet three are God. Father plus Jesus plus Holy Spirit equal God. Or put it another way, one plus one plus one equals one. Either that's bad math or a profound, unexplainable mystery. There are passages where all three are mentioned on an equal basis, like Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that sounds like God. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of who? The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Second Corinthians 3 says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, Christ, God, and Holy Spirit. So how can God be one and yet three? That's where the mystery comes in, and we will not fully understand this. No one does. There's different analogies people have used, like an egg. An egg is one, and it has three parts, yolk, white, and shell. Water comes in three forms, ice, liquid, and steam, but it's still all water. Or a man, like myself, I have three roles. I'm a father, I'm a preacher, I'm a husband, and yet one person. But those analogies all fall short because God has three distinct different personalities, not three roles of God or three forms of God. And to the outsider, this is illogical and absurd, but just because something is illogical to us does not mean it does not exist. There's a lot of stuff about God we cannot grasp, but it's still true. So my goal for you is not that you would understand the Trinity. After this sermon, I don't want the Trinity to be any less amazing or mysterious than it already is and always will be. I hope it becomes more mysterious to you. I don't want God to become less mysterious because a God that I can fully understand is by definition not much of a God. If you uh, get on social media, there are experts on God all over the place. And if God can fit inside my tiny head, it is not a God worth worshiping. And most of the gods you see on social media are not worth worshiping. Now, here's the beautiful thing. You don't have to understand to worship and to pray. In fact, it should enhance your worship. Two key words about the Trinity, diversity and unity. God is three distinct persons. That's the diversity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they exist in perfect unity and harmony with each other. They are one. In John 17, it says the Father gives glory to the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. And in John 15, the Holy Spirit gives glory to Jesus. In the Trinity, they all glorify each other. There exists no jealousy or hostility or disharmony. The Trinity is a perfectly united community. In other words, God is a relationship. So what? Why does this matter? Tell us, Einstein. Number one, the Trinity tells us about the kind of God we have, obviously. Now, if I were to start a phrase and you were to finish it, in fact, if most people were to finish it, I think the vast majority would agree on one word. God is what? Love. Most people say God is love. All right. That is true. 1 John 4, 8 says that. I want to suggest that without God being triune, He cannot be love. Now, hang in here with me. If God is not triune, He cannot be love. What is love? The word for love is agape in the Greek, and it's not a feeling you have. It's an action toward another being, another person. To love, you need two people. Go back before the creation of the world, before the creation of the angels, before the creation of animals or any other being, and in fact, there's no universe. Go way back. All there is is God. If God is not triune, Who's he love? He can't. There's no one to love. He doesn't. Love always has an object. It's always somebody else. The Trinity means that this is a God who perfectly loves. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this harmonious, perfect relationship. If I lived in a cave, isolated from all people and never knew anyone, I I cannot love. Oh, I might have some feelings, but feelings are not the essence of love. It's a relationship with another being beyond myself. If there is no other person to love, there can be no love. Does this this make sense? Knock your head yes if you're getting this. Okay. All right. I think we got 10 getting it. Here we go. C.S. Lewis says, here's what he says. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love has no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. The Trinity says, at the heart of all reality is a community. The foundation of all being of this the universe is a relationship. And it's a relationship that you were created by and invited to experience. So love is something one person has for another person. And if God is not triune, if He's not a plurality, there is no love possible, at least before the beginning of creation. Jesus prayed to God, you love me before the creation of the world in John 17, 24. Before the creation of the world, no other beings existed, and God could not be love if God has no one to love. Back in Philippians, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The Trinity, this perfect relationship, is what we should pattern our relationships after, glorifying one another. Don't use your relationship to, you, to your own advantage, use it to serve others, which leads to number two, the Trinity tells us what kind of people we are. We are made in the image of this God, and we are to be like Him. In other words, we should reflect the Trinity relationship in our relationships. Paul does that. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, as He has toward the Father. Now, I think the closest thing to earth we have with the Trinity is in Genesis 2.24, where it says man and woman will become one flesh. Marriage. Same word for one used there in Genesis 2 is also used in Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says God is one. Man and woman are one. God is one. Both marriage and the Trinity are a unity of distinct personalities, a oneness. So the Trinity is actually the pattern for every marriage. Every marriage should be one in spirit and one in goals. And the couples are glorifying each other, and there's a oneness, and yet there's two distinct personalities living in harmony. It's also a pattern for, the, for a whole family, for friendships, for fellowship in the church. We are all members of one another. We're mutually dependent on each other, and uh, we, we glorify one another like God does. So we love one another just like God, Jesus, and the Spirit all do in the Trinity. So this idea of a private faith, which is so predominant today, and that I don't need the church... I don't need other believers. It goes against the very nature of God. An isolated, privatized Christianity is not Christianity. Social media belief in God is not the Christian God. John Paul Sartre, whose works were enormously influential in the 1960s, wrote of the great freedom found in human isolation. And he penned this phrase, Hell is other people. And sometimes he's right, isn't he? People can make your life hellish, awful. Marriage can be miserable. Church life can be awful. But the Trinity says there's actually something worse. Hell is isolation. When Jesus described hell, he described it as an outer darkness, this picture of being alone. Dante's Inferno said, In hell you're separated by millions and millions of miles from any other people. That's what hell is. And the Trinity shows the loving God we have, but it's also a signal for who we are and how we were created. We were created to be in community with others. We were created to love. It's just in our being, in our natural makeup, just as it is in God's being. Maybe you know some adults who are kind of isolationists. They like to be alone. But even then, they need people too. No man is an island. Children, leave them alone, they get scared. They know something's wrong. You have to be trained to be an isolationist. Now, one other Thing, no other religion. This is one thing no other religion or philosophy can explain. Why do people need people? Science cannot answer that. If we're just molecules, you don't see molecules having social relationships with each other. Other religions cannot answer why people need people because no other religion has a triune God. Only a triune social God would produce a social person. When Garrett came back from Uganda, he told me, they have nothing but they are rich in relationships. They've not been influenced by American individualism, even American isolationism, which really is tearing our nation apart. But just as God cannot love without someone to love, neither can you or I. Love demands a relationship. Are you with me on this? Say yes. Thank you. Don't lie either. Number three. The Trinity tells us what kind of Savior we have. Now, the nature of Jesus has always been controversial. There's been great classic debates. Is he God? Is he man? Was he God that appeared to be a man? Was he an angel? Most cults in some way will deny Jesus is God. He was less than God. If Jesus is not God, that means God did not die for us. Got that? If Jesus is not God, it means God did not die for us. Is that important? What if Jesus were an angel and an angel died in our place? An angel is a created being. And one common characteristic of all created beings is what? They can sin. They can fall. Satan was an angel. We'll talk about that next week. If Jesus is not God, but a created being, how do we know He will be faithful for all eternity? We don't know that. If Jesus is a created being, there's the possibility He will fall maybe sometime. But because our Savior is God Himself, we know confidently He will remain faithful because He is eternal. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity assures eternal salvation, which I think is pretty important. Without Jesus being God, there is no assurance of eternal salvation because God cannot sin and He will not sin. Number four, the Trinity tells us the kind of church and society we are to be. There's an old, old philosophical controversy between the one and the many. I remember this coming up with Spock on Star Trek many many years ago in an, in an episode and we deal with this in our politics today the one is the whole picture the sum total of things that which maintains the unity the united states of america one nation united then the many are the individual parts the particulars the individual citizens uh, the 50 states we have one nation 300 million citizens 50 states that's all part of the many so you have one nation And then the particulars, the many. For us, we have one church, one body of Christ, Mount Pulaski Christian Church, but we're made up of many individual believers, one and many. And the question is, which one's more important? Who has priority? The well-being of the one, the church or the country, or the well-being of the individual citizen or believer? E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Which is more important? The one nation or the many individuals. Plato said the one is more important. Therefore, the many individuals are subservient to the government. The state is supreme. And the Greeks taught if an individual child is not useful to the state, you kill him. Hitler says you kill the Jews, you kill the gypsies, because they're not useful, they're expendable. The one is all-important, the state, the nation. The government is supreme, and that's one reason our forefathers wanted the government to have some restraints put on it to keep this balance between the one and the many. Now today, some would give priority to the many. Individual rights trump all. The individual is more important than the good of the nation. And one individual can holler unfair, and everyone else has to give in, and the whole nation suffers. John F. Kennedy's probably most famous statement was, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. That's the one and the many. Does the one serve the country, or does the country serve me? God is triune, both one and many, unum and pluribus, and has this perfect relationship between the one and the many, and our government is built on that balance, of the, the checks and balances. And if we stress the many... The individual rights are most important. You'll have chaos. We see some of that today. And you end up with no unity. If we stress the one, the state, you end up with totalitarianism, and the state runs everything. Now, it's interesting. You get this screwed up, and you'll end up with both, chaos and totalitarianism. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Does that sound a little bit the direction of our country? God is one and many, like our country and our nation and like our church. And we are to be like this triune God and keep that balance. We believe in the importance of the whole church as one body, but we also believe in the importance of individual believers within the body. Sometimes the church will cater to every whim of every individual, and often it's the loudest complainers, and the whole church suffers and paralyzes the body of Christ, and it suffers because we give too much weight to the many. Well, we can't do it because Fred will get mad, and the whole church suffers. The many outweighs the one. Or you go the other way and the church becomes overbearing, and uncaring institution. The individual doesn't matter as much as budgets and buildings and board meetings and lose compassion for the individual. So the Trinity reminds us and keeps us balanced. We want a church that is one body that is growing and healthy, but we also want every individual to be growing and to be healthy. Am I losing you? You with me? Say yes. All right. One more implication. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. They're equal in being. And yet there is an authority-submission relationship. The Bible tells us the father sends the son. The son never sends the father. The son obeys the father. The father never obeys the son. The son prays to the father. The father does not pray to the son. And the very terms father and son indicate there's an authority-submissive relationship there, right? So the Trinity shows us that both authority and submission are God-like qualities. See, when we think of God, we usually think of authority, Lord, King, and that's all true, But God is also a submissive God, a servant. God the Son submits to God the Father. God the Spirit submits to God the Son. So the nature of God honors both authority and submission. So for you who are in authority, whether it be in the home or at work or at the church, whatever, you be like God. Use your authority the way God used His authority. And for you who are in submission, you also be like God, like Jesus, and how he submitted to the Father. It is God-like to lead like God, and it is God-like to submit like God. Josh is my son, and as my son when he was a kid, he was under my authority. But because he was under my authority does not make him less human than I am. He's every bit as human as I am. We are equals in that regard, but he still submitted to my authority sometimes. Sometimes. When Jesus calls his God, God his Father, he's claiming equality with God. They're the same essence, the same substance, and the Jews got mad. But he's also admitting submission by calling him Father. So the Trinity becomes a model for both authority and submission, and they're both godlike. I show my authority by the way the Father shows authority with my children, for instance, as a leader in the church. And I will submit to the authorities in my life the way Jesus submitted to his Father. I have a whole sermon on how the Trinity tells husbands and wives how to relate in an authority-submissive relationship. So, let me summarize. Without the Trinity, you do not have a loving God, not logically. You cannot have a loving God. The Muslim God is not a God of love, cannot be, logically speaking. Without it, God did not die for us. Some created being did, and that created being may or may not sin, and eternal salvation is not certain. Without the Trinity, we get out of balance with the one and the many. The genius of our nation is this balance, and the farther our nation gets away from its godlike roots, the farther our nation gets into trouble. Without it, we humans would not be social beings because we are made in God's image, and God is a social being. And without it, we would not understand that authority and submission both are godlike qualities. So, can you help me understand the Trinity? Probably not. But I hope it helps to see how important it is. I want you to stand with me right now. I want us to stand in honor of this God that we worship. Just stand in awe, and I'm going to pray for us. God, we stand before you recognizing you are far, far beyond us. You amaze us, just thinking about who you are. You are far beyond our comprehension, and worthy of our worship and our praise, worthy of our service and our love and our all. And I pray, Lord, as a church, we reflect your nature. We reflect the unity and yet diversity that you are. Help us as a church to attain and maintain the balance of the one and the many. I help pray for our nation that we will remember our roots of this who's important, the one or the many, and both are. And in our relationships, I pray they will reflect the nature of your oneness and yet diversity. Thank you for being our God and our guide, our Lord and our creator. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.